So I thought I'd talk about um, mindfulness, what it's supposed to do for you. I thought I'd talk about how do you do it, and how does it work, and does it work, and how do we experience that it is working, or has worked. And absent any external data about some changes that might have happened, how do we know by subjective report that anything has happened? I was thinking about external data, and I remembered that I think it's two years ago, March, the cover of National Geographic had uh, a picture of um, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, uh, all wired up for, uh, you probably all saw that, all wired up, it's a great photo, all wired up for testing for brainwave patterns. And uh, it was quite a good summary article, I thought, in in terms of a popular article about uh, meditation. It talked about this particular person. By the way, it looked to me like somebody getting a permanent wave. You know, all these wires coming out of their heads. Used to be that you got your hair curled with a thing that looked like that. But anyway, here's this person with this what looks like all this equipment all over their head, looks like a shower cap or permanent wave. And it said in the text that given this person's pattern of brainwave or neuronal firing, given this person's pattern of neuronal firing, according to that pattern, he must be the happiest person in the world. So that actually gave me a lot of pleasure. I thought about what would it be like to be the happiest person in the world? How does the happiest person in the world feel? And what does it mean to be that? And two stories came to mind. The stories are about 30 years apart. And so I'll tell you both stories, and then we can follow the, the theme of that story through the rest. First is a story um, that happened about 30 years ago, maybe more, a little bit less. I'm not sure exactly of the time. I tried to date it by the fact that I was on holiday with my husband in Guaymas, which is in the Sonora Desert of Mexico, in a a hotel in the middle of the summer, which most people don't go to Sonora in the middle of the summer because it's extremely hot, it's a desert. But there was this enormous hotel right on the ocean side the great cement edifice, air-conditioned as anything, so that inside of it, it was quite comfortably air-conditioned, and you could just step out and swim. The water was like a bathtub, really. It was so warm. Um, And uh, we were either swimming or in our room. And uh, I remembered that I was reading um, Cousin Zakas and Herman Hesse and Alan Watts and... Carlos Castaneda, so that probably puts it sometime in the 70s. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we were talking about uh, um, what's the meaning of it all. And actually, my birthday fell in the middle of that period of time that we were there. This is an exaggerated story. We'd have these long and very morose ending talks about the, was, is there a meaning, what's the meaning? And, uh, and uh, on the eve of my birthday, my husband said, you know, I forgot to buy you a birthday present. Uh, and here we are in the middle of the desert. There's no place where I can get you a birthday present. What would you like for your birthday? 
I said, I would like 24 hours with no word about what's the meaning of it all. Not one single sentence about despair and loss or nothing. I want to be like a regular person. <laughs> there was a trailer court right next to that uh, hotel in the adjoining property. And there were people with caravans who were living there as well over the summer. And uh, we walked down there frequently to swim in that bay, to sail a boat in that bay. And we befriended a young woman who had two children and was living in a caravan there. So I have to tell you, I, I, I am electing to tell you, that uh, you have to hear this story as if you had my mind, which looks for possible difficulties in situations. <laughs> so she was a young woman alone with two young children in the Sonora Desert in a caravan in the middle of the summer. Uh, and they're uh, four and six months. And the four-year-old is paddling around in the water because they're right at the ocean side. And the six-month-old, maybe he was seven, he was just crawling around. And it was very sunny, very hot. And uh, her husband, she told me, she lived in LA. Her husband ran a flying school. And uh, she said, he flies down on the weekends. She said, I don't like to stay in LA in the summer. So I always come down in the summer, and I stay here, and he comes down on the weekends. So he flies down and flies back on the weekends, and in the meantime, I'm here with the children. So there are, for a mind like mine, there are a lot of things wrong with that story, like being alone on the beach in a foreign country. What, what, does she have a refrigerator in there? How is she refrigerating milk or food? Or where, where is the local pediatrician? Uh, how will she get there if... Uh, so a lot of things, sun, sunburn, other things that can happen with water. They're having a good time. So one night during this time, middle of the night, there was an extraordinary storm, wind whistling, and, and we we wakened up by a lightning, an unusual summer storm, very intense rain. We pulled back the curtains, and the lightning was flashing all the way across the sky, and water was sluicing down. And I imagined, because the ground was so dry, that it would have gone right through this trailer court. And I was worried about my woman. Um, and here we were in our fortress of a hotel. And the following morning, the storm was over. We went to the trailer court to check up. And uh, it was a mess. All the outdoor furniture was all strewn all over the place, and the water actually flowing all over the place. And uh, I found my woman, she's sweeping up in front of her little trailer, and her children are playing outside. And I said, uh, how was the storm? And she said, it was fine. And she said, uh, you know, was it at all? I said, was it at all difficult? She said, no, no. She said, the baby slept right through it, but I woke up John because I didn't want him to miss it. I actually count that women, woman as one of my first transformative gurus. I looked at her and I thought, there's another way to live a life. <laughs> you can live a life as if it's an adventure, not as if it's a crisis. I wanted, I thought to myself, if there was such a thing as a mind transplant, I would have liked to have a mind transplant <laughs> or a mindectomy. I just wanted that piece out of mine that managed to take a situation and see only what was catastrophic about it. We'll come back to that woman in a little bit. But she was my first teacher, one of my first teachers. Three weeks ago, I um, 
Well, last month, actually. I flew back from New York, and um, the planes these days, you probably have just experienced, are so crowded. I mean, really, everybody's sitting like this. And I fortunately had row 4A right by the window, which was nice. And uh, crowded, but still, row four, you don't have to go way to the back. And there was someone in 4C, but 4B was empty. And about an hour into the flight, a woman materialized right at the aisle right next to me, and I see her, a woman about my age, and she says, uh, is that seat empty? I said, it is. And she said, would it be all right with you if for the last half hour of the flight I came and sat there? So truth to tell, I was very relieved because I had the ignoble thought that I really didn't want her to sit down there right then. Uh, but the last half hour of the flight, sure. I said, no, fine. I looked at the man on the aisle. He says, nods, yes. She disappears. Half hour, turned out an hour because we circled so long. She showed up again. and. Uh, She's got her uh, little carry-on bag, and she puts her coat up in the overhead, and she sits down, and she again thanks me so much. And I said, no, 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 it's fine. I said, uh, do you feel better sitting up here at the end? She said, well, I do. She said, uh, I have claustrophobia, and uh, I, I'm all right in a plane, but if I'm in the way back, once it lands, and everybody stands up, and my head is, can't really, be, I can't really stand up straight. And there are all those people. It takes so long for the people to get off. I start to feel really uneasy. So I'm really grateful. Thank you very much. I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm glad you were able to tell me that. Uh, she said, oh, yeah. She said, it's not a problem. I'm not embarrassed. Everybody's got something. <laughs> so that's piece one. You can tell this is another wise woman story, right? So I say, uh, uh, do you live in uh, Do you live in San Francisco? Where, where were we going? We were going to New York. I said, Do you live in New York? Are you going back home, or uh, uh, were you visiting San Francisco? Or she said, No, I live in San Francisco, but I'm going to New York because my sister's uh, husband died yesterday, and I'm going to the funeral tomorrow. And um, my I have two sisters back in the back with me, going with me, who also live in the Bay Area. And uh, I have two more sisters. Uh, I have another sister in New York and two brothers. I may be getting the numbers wrong. But anyway, she said there are seven of us. So I said, it's a good thing to have a big family at a time like this. It's very supportive. She said, well, it is. She said, she laughed. She said, you know, she said it is. She said, we're seven now. We used to be eight. But um, she laughed. She said, uh, you know, it was the Times, uh, Irish Catholic families. We had a lot of children. So uh, she said, but my brother Jimmy, uh, he died when he was 17. He died in the Pacific in the war. He enlisted just before his 18th birthday because he knew he was going to get drafted. And he didn't want to be in the Army. He wanted to be in the Navy because he said he liked to sleep in a dry bed. But his ship was sank. And uh, she sa I said to her, uh, who took it harder, your mother or your father? She said, they both took it terrible. It was very hard. She said, you know, but later on, 
my brothers and sisters and I, we made a foundation, a family foundation, and we pay for children and a couple of children every year in the Solomon Islands who are talented students to go to school in Guadalcanal because you have to be able to fly there and stay there in all those islands. So a couple of people in my, we go over every couple of years and visit. I said, family foundation, you know, you, you, to, that, that's really something. She said, well, it's a big family. There are 96 of us now with all my brothers and sisters and their children and their children. I said, it was a wonderful thing that you've done. And she said, well, you know, you have to do something like that. When a terrible thing happens to you like that, you have to do something to really make it all right in the end. You have to do something to finish it in a good way. Now, by that time, we had pulled up to the gate. And the minute the plane stopped, she leaped up, reached up, got her coat, pushed herself past the man sitting in the aisle, and was way up front to be the first person off the plane. And I just sat there, and I thought, you know, there are wise people all over the place. And just sit down next to a person. You know, we talk about this meditative path being the path to wisdom and compassion. She had a lot of wisdom and compassion. I just, I'd love to read the... Um, the stories of the, of the early days of the Buddha, when he first began to teach about the truth about life and uh, that life is challenging, that things are fragile, life is precious, also fragile, things change, you never know what's going to happen. Clinging to the way things were is, of course, a cause of suffering. When they, they say in some of those early stories, that when he spoke to great crowds of people, at the end of the story it says, often when he was finished speaking, so and so many of them were completely enlightened and never again did their minds get caught in clinging and in suffering. I think to myself, it would be a marvelous thing if someone could say, this is just the truth, and people could say, whoa, all of those habits of mind that caused my suffering. They just fell away. In the text, it always says, and their minds, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I love that. I actually listen to Dharma talks of my friends or whoever's speaking, and I think, you know, there's a precedent for becoming enlightened while listening to a Dharma talk. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I sometimes think, well, I'll come to what I think later. I, uh, we'll come back to that. But let's go back to something that Wes said last night when he said we take refuge. We take refuge in the truth of how things are, that everything is changing. As a matter of fact, it's even perhaps, uh, I was thinking about it this afternoon, everything is changed. There's nothing but change. By the time you figure it out, it's changed. Now it's something else, now it's something else. Often it doesn't seem so changing in every moment, but everything changes according to conditions, vast conditions, you know. When I think about things like free will or people who say, I want to be in charge of my life, you know, I have to be, I'm the kind of person that has to be in charge of my life. I think to myself, I don't know if I'm in charge of anything. 
I'm in charge of what I choose to eat for dinner if I don't have a heart attack before dinner and I get there. And if there's dinner there. Or, but I don't know. Those are things that are way outside of my realm of control. The Buddha called impermanence uh, karma, the, 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 the causes and events of things, the, the web of causes and events and causes and events. He called it one of the imponderables. Who could think? I have a friend who uh, many years ago when she was, had just graduated from college went on a trip to Europe and sat down on a train in France and married the man that was sitting in the seat next to her. And they're still married. And they have grandchildren. And I think about what would have happened if she would have gotten on the next train or the train before. But actually, that's true of all of us and the whole of our life. I am here today in this moment, and so are you, because of all the trains I ever got on and all of the near catastrophes that didn't happen so that I'm still alive and everybody else's. Sometimes I think about uh, if I want to be dramatic, but that my karma, uh, that Genghis Khan is part of my karma <laughs> because of trade routes to the Orient, which changed the economic patterns of Eastern Europe, which changed the need for people to migrate in great groups, which caused my grandparents in different parts of Europe to move to, to emigrate to the United States, which caused the two grandparents, the four of my grandparents that, that were my grandparents, to meet each other and make babies, who then met each other and made me. But so he is distal karma, but nevertheless, a piece of the karma. So is everything else that ever happened in the whole world, and every right turn and every left turn. And sometimes when I think about that, I think, oh. and sometimes I think it's a great relief to know I'm not in charge. There is such a thing as personal volition. Things we plan to do things, and sometimes we actually—it actually feels like we do it, and we planned it. But a lot of times, it doesn't work out, or it works out in a way we didn't think. But so, two of the three characteristics of truth—the three truths of life that the Buddha said would be liberating if we got them—were impermanent. Are impermanence. When things are really terrible, to be able to say to myself, this is really terrible, but it isn't going to last, is very sustaining. I wouldn't say it to somebody in the middle of a great grief. It's not a good time to say it to somebody. But it really enables me to be with people. I think of the people here who are psychotherapists, who are with people often in great grief. I think one of the things that keeps me not um, able to stay with people in great grief and not be frightened by it is some awareness that grief is tolerable because it, it like everything else, it, it's like the, in that story about my brother Jimmy, she said, my parents never got over it. But the intensity of the grief changed over time. It's very consoling to know that things pass. It's also, for me, very vivifying, because if I know that this isn't going to last, I'm really very hesitant to mortgage any bit of time to grudges and angers and 
any kinds of breaches of relationship. It, life is too short to do that. And the third of the three truths that the Buddha wanted for us to see in meditation and in life is that really there's a difference between the painful things that happen in life, which happen to everybody, and suffering about it. Suffering's an odd translation of the Pali word. I would call it, I, I think a better word for it would be anguish. Um, that things happen, and there are things that happen that uh, we don't want to have happen that we can change, and there are things that happen that we can't change. And to be able to say, this happened, I didn't want it. It can't change. And to feel sad, to, to, to grieve it, and to not allow the mind, or to not have the mind create the extra tension of the imperative that it be different. I, I think to myself, I was thinking today, as I was thinking about this, I wonder what some um, scan of the brain when it's feeling imperative looks like. I wish somebody would tell me that sometime. It's an imperative that's so painful. One of my, the students in Spirit Rock who comes regularly to a class down the hill um, was diagnosed uh, with uh, MS, young woman, and a thriving life, everything going well. And she said, I really need to practice now because I, I have to have my mind and my whole being in a place where I'm able to say to myself, without getting all resentful about it, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. There's so many things that happen that aren't what we want, but it's what we got. And the mind that can actually say that and mean it and not become... I kept thinking today, as I was thinking about saying that, the words that kept coming to mind was not tie itself in a knot. Now I am quite sure that that is not a scientific term for anything that the mind can do, tie itself in a knot. But it definitely feels to me that my mind has tied itself into a knot. And in the moment where my friend Martha, who died uh, a year or two ago, died of pancreas cancer, so she knew she was dying. And at one point she said to me, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this dying. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, as a Buddhist, you're supposed to open to all your experience. I said, Martha, you're dying of pancreas cancer. It's not... She said, well, she said, well what, 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 what would a good Buddhist do? I said, well, I suppose you're not supposed to be angry with it, that's all. She said, well, truth to tell, I am angry with it. I said, well... And, she said, and I said, well, then don't be angry with yourself about being angry with it. She said, I'm also angry with myself about being <laughs> angry with it. And she said, you know how it is? She said, I'll think to myself, all of a sudden, I'll think to myself, why me? Why me? So many people don't have cancer. Why me? And when I think that, I really suffer. She said, and then all of a sudden, some little time will go by, and I'll think to myself, why not me? People get pancreas cancer. It's one of those things. My father died of it. It's a gene. Probably inherited it. 
She said, when I think, why not me? I'm not happy about dying, but I'm not anguished about it. I remember listening to talks 30 years ago where my teachers said, the three things that's really important to see and experience and know and have viscerally as part of your experience is the truth of change, the truth of suffering being the imperative in the mind that can't allow the truth of this moment, the truth that things are what they are because of myriad causes, most of them way beyond what we design or control. And they said, that's what is really important to know. Those will be the three things you'll discover. So I thought to myself, I get it. I got what you just said. What will I now discover in another way? Why will it be different if I feel it, if I meditate and discover that, than if I just listen to you and hear it? And you know, as I think about it over the years, I have thought to myself at some times, it is different to all of a sudden have the mind, have the awareness of change arise in the mind when it's really quiet and really paying attention. Maybe it does get more viscerally into the structure of the mind than just hearing it. I thought to myself, who doesn't know that? You know, my, my, my children's births are 40 and 50 years ago. I mean, you know that there's a past. I know that when my mind ties itself into a knot, and it doesn't have to, I suffer gratuitously. I also know that even though I know that I am suffering because my mind has tied itself into a knot, and that it would only let go and accept the circumstance, it would stop hurting so badly. Sometimes I can, and sometimes I can't. But more often, I guess I can. Actually, when I think to myself, I am still suffering. If I let go, I wouldn't be suffering. I can at least have compassion for myself, that I know that peace is possible and I haven't got it. And I might wish for myself, may it happen soon, that I arrive at peace around that. I feel better then when I do that. So we'll talk about how does mindfulness work to see this. I have this fantasy, you know, that the Buddha went and taught all over the place, and he told everybody, listen, this is the end of suffering. Just get it. And so and so many people got it, and the rest of the people, they didn't. And so I imagined it was then that he uh, gave his uh, sermon on the four foundations of mindfulness. and said, okay, you didn't get it just when I told it to you, just by immediate realization. I'll have to break it down for you. I'll have to have you pay attention in a more... Uh, structured way. And I think about it sometimes, this is my personal, totally my personal midrash about the Buddha. I made this up, of course, that the Buddha thinking pedagogically, some of the students are getting this and some of them are not. What could I do to teach the other ones? It's like the early birds who come an hour early to learn reading in school. So, okay, we're going to have this particular teaching on really pay attention and then you'll see that. Pay attention by paying attention to the breath in your body, seeing how it comes and goes. Feel the body sensations, how they arise and pass away. As you sit, as you breathe, as you eat, as you move about, all the things that we are doing, 
we are actually paying attention to what we're doing in the hope that we'll see beyond what we're doing the truth that's really hidden behind it. Sometimes mindfulness is translated, vipassana is translated often as um, clear seeing, seeing clearly. And in a French text that I saw, it was translated as uh, vision profonde. And I've liked that much better. I think it's much better to think about, somehow for me, because I could take off my glasses and wipe them and then I'd see clearly. But to see profoundly what's true, that I am suffering because I am unable to let go. Like my friend Martha. When I, su- when I struggle, I suffer. When I let go, I don't. When people pay attention, just as we are here, to their body and its changing feelings, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, we can see the truth of change in that. Pay attention to the mind and how these thoughts come and those thoughts come and how a particular thought arises and it immediately uh, echoes through the body with a certain feeling and it brings up a certain memory. How does that all work? And to pay attention to that and see how, um, how the mind works to accommodate this changing moment-to-moment experience that we call a life. Thoughts and feelings and thoughts and feelings and body sensations arising and passing away. doesn't mean that we become neutral about everything. I was thinking about, especially with thoughts and feelings, that um, one of the harder disciplines is reading emails, because there's so many. You read an email and it's great news, and then you read an email and it's troubling news, or you read another email and it's sad news, but the next one is good news. And I think it must be so hard on us to really assimilate all of that. I have a friend whose practice it is before he opens every single email to make a blessing for himself in the email. May I meet this email with a kind heart, well disposed to answer it carefully. Every single email. And then he begins all of his responses to whomever, I hope this email finds you well. And if he's responding to people that he knows personally, he's a friend of mine, and he's responding to one of my emails, He might say, I hope this day has dawned without yesterday's problem being there or whatever, but it begins with a blessing. So when you read the email, then you're ready to listen to the next of it. Partly when people pay attention very carefully in that way of watching the experiences that arise in the body and in the mind and the sense of pleasant and unpleasant that come and go with all of it, come to see that all these changing things are just happening. And sometimes you see that they're not happening to anyone. They're just happening. Sometimes people say that when we realize that there's no one that it's happening to, that we construct the separate sense of self or the sense of a separate self out of kind of parallax. If all of these emotions are happening and all of these feelings are happening, they must be happening to someone who's in here. But there's no one, it's just we can screw the one. It's an optical illusion. 
But I'm not sure that that's completely a relief, optical illusion or not. And there was a time that my husband and I did some study with uh, an Advaita teacher, and they're very strong on really um, uh, arousing the realization that there's no little Sylvia in here unchanging throughout the days and years, that there's no one there. We had just done this period of intensive training with a teacher, and I reported I, something had happened with one of my daughters, and I'd said, uh, I told him privately, of course, I said, I'm so mad at naming which daughter. And he said in a very wise way, he said, where is the I that's angry? And I said, don't give me any of that guff. You and I both know that there's no I here and no I there, but anger has arisen, and it is painful, and I'm letting you know about it. I don't think it, it for me, it's not so helpful to know that there's no I who owns the anger. It's much more helpful for me to know that it will pass, like everything else, and the grief will pass, like everything else. It was very helpful for me going back to the story of my first guru on the beach in Guaymas, to notice, to really get it, that everyone processes material in a different way. That that woman processed material as what an adventure life is. I process it for looking for impending catastrophes on the horizon. Who knows why? I don't know why. I'm waiting for the scientists to figure that out. My parents didn't particularly do that. What was tremendously helpful in my meditative practice is that when I slowed down enough and I began to see that, in fact, what happened was actually a habit of mind. Something would happen and that my mind would perceive what happened and write a story about it, one of a million possible stories. But it wrote a catastrophic one most of the time. You know when you're in the airport and they say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Then there's like two seconds before they say, please keep yourself close to your luggage. Do not leave your luggage unguarded. That's what they always say. Please do not leave your luggage unguarded. But in those two seconds, in between, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please, and the luggage thing, I think to myself, the plane I'm waiting for has just crashed. That's what they're going to say. <laughs> That's what my mind makes. It, you know, for who knows why? For a long time, I would have traded my mind with anybody like the woman on the beach. And what's gotten better over the years is that there's enough space in my reaction time to know that, to hear that, to have the thought and have nothing much happen. Have the thought, say, there's my machine. It's just clicked into action. It's made its thought again. Actually, I've become a little bit really uh, proud of that machine. First of all, I've become really uh, sure that that's like a cookie cutter, that machine. And if you have a square cookie cutter, it doesn't suddenly make circles. That it's probably going to cut those kind of cookies for a long time. That's its mode. But also I think to myself, it's really inventive of me to make those stories. I mean, most regular people don't think those kind of stories. You know? I think, well, maybe it's good. Maybe it enables me to write. Maybe it has to do with having a fanciful mind. You know, I'm not going to so far as to say I'm going to embrace the... I don't like that, actually, idea. I would rather not have it, but I have it. So to be able to say to people, you know what? I have brown eyes and I'm short, and I have a mind that creates catastrophes out of nothing. <laughs> but 
I actually know it, so it's, I'm not actually... I think, I think it's fair to say I'm a recovering fretter. I'm a recovering fretter. I actually was thinking this afternoon that, uh, and I hadn't thought this before, that, over, that I think seeing the mind habit so clearly over years and seeing it a lot during periods of time that my mind was relatively resting and at ease, both together conspired to move me to this place. I think it's both. I think it's both actually experiencing it at, as a mind habit, experiencing the suffering that was connected with that mind habit. I used to think to myself, if I could have the time back that I'd spent fretting over something, I'd have half my life yet over to live again. Um, and the people who say to you, there's no point to worrying, it doesn't do anything, it's just a waste of time, they're completely right. But not if it, it is your particular cookie cutter. Actually, I was thinking today, probably some of you know this better than I, that it's some form of OCD just uh, uh, with the addiction being uh, checking out the truth or non-truth of catastrophic stories. But I thought to myself, perhaps what I've been doing all these years, because I'm actually a recovering fretter, uh, is uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. That's what I thought of today. It was the fanciest way that I've ever thought about it. I think it's important, both parts of it, to see the habit, see the suffering that it causes, and to have that experience repeatedly in the context where the mind's relaxed enough to really get it in some deep way. So the instructions in that particular, uh, in, the, in the four foundations, to pay attention to your body and the sensations, the coming and going of the feelings of pleasant, of the sense of the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, the changing climate of the mind, the presence and abs or absence of um, angry thoughts, lustful thoughts, peaceful feelings, benevolent thoughts. The ability to recognize presence in the mind of I don't think of the right word but it would have caused them positive thinking salubrious feelings and thoughts peace and goodwill and benevolence and friendliness and um, compassion and appreciation and tolerance and patience and generosity Noticing the, uh, 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 the uh, presence of that in the mind and then noticing how pleasant it is and cultivating it just by resting in it. You don't have to go out and do something. So this is peace. This is lovely. I used to give myself tests. Maybe this is the last story I'll tell you. But in learning about... Um, and learning that the, that, that the experience of peace in the mind was a possibility, even if your life hadn't changed one bit. And the story, all the stories in your life that are creating imperative, this has to be different, and then it'll be all right, that has to be different, that'll be all right. 
if this gets fixed, then it'll be all right. I remember walking, doing walking meditation mostly down in the desert in Yucca Valley years ago where I did a lot of my practice. And um, really discovering for an anxious person who frets and worries a lot that my mind could actually find itself quite surprisingly in really long periods of quite relaxed feelings where it feels at ease in the world. So really a lovely discovery for me. And I think to myself, my mind is so peaceful. I'll just give myself a test right now. I'll think, I'll think one of my thoughts that might frighten me, like I, my children at that point were, I, I guess my youngest child was still a teenager. And I think to myself, um, I remember she was going to Mexico on a holiday. And I thought to myself, what if Emmy goes to Mexico and forgets her asthma medicine? See, and I watch how the mind just stays nice. And it doesn't get all clutched up. And out of that place of not, <gasps> it reveals its wisdom, which is, I remember actually this is a whole scenario. I think that, oh, look at that. That didn't get upset. And then it thinks further. It thinks she probably remembered to take her asthma medicine. They have pharmacies in Mexico. <laughs> I can't do anything if she forgot it or didn't forget it. And here I am this afternoon. I could mess up the afternoon thinking about that or not. I could just walk in the desert. And you know, I think sometimes when, you, when, when I began to practice, people talked about liberation. And we heard one, which was a wonderful word, and we heard wonderful stories of, but I, th I think of that as liberation. Not being held hostage by the habits of my mind because I've seen them well enough so that I can't as easily be kidnapped by them. I can still get kidnapped, but not as easily. I think this is a practice for the whole life. But I think that awareness, I'd like to actually suggest now that um, we sit for the next 15 minutes. And uh, we'll do this every afternoon. We'll have a teaching for 45 minutes, and then we'll sit at the end of it. Because it's nice to sit and really let those teachings go in before we get up and do things. So sit for these 15 minutes. But I'd actually like to uh, suggest to you that uh, as your meditation in these 15 minutes, you might actually start just by sitting easily. Letting yourself become comfortable. If you feel good or inspired or pleased by what I said, maybe it'll be easier for you to do this. You can feel your body. And maybe feel your breath presenting itself to you.
Perhaps this would be a good time to tell you the meditation instruction that my friend Ajahn Amaro gives that I like so much. He says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And just stay like that. To be reminded that our um, birthright is peace and ease. We talk a lot about the habits of the mind, but this would be a time to feel peace and ease. You might actually see what happens if you uh, say to yourself once or twice or more, may I feel peace and ease in this moment. And then just sit. You can say it as many times as you want. Actually conditions its arising. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.